Susan Evans almost saw it as she sat at a a traffic intersection in one of the communities near us this past week. Susan was just getting going on her day. She was sitting at that traffic light. She happened to notice on the dashboard of her car that one of those warning indicators had gone on, one that indicated she ought to have her brakes checked. She thought to herself at that moment, I'm going to do something about this now. And she anticipated taking a right turn at the intersection, going right down the street to where she knew there was a shop and having the brakes checked out. But then she thought of all there was to do in the day, all the things on the to-do list, and she chose to turn left instead. As she was going down the street, her mind swimming with the details of the day, she looked up into the uh, rearview mirror and noticed that her lipstick was a little bit of out of sorts, and she began to work on it, and she never saw the eight-year-old boy on his way to school as he drifted off into the traffic ahead of her on his bicycle. Joe Clark, across town, was getting ready for work. He slipped his right arm into his business jacket, and he uh, reached out for his briefcase with his other hand and was about to go out the door when he heard the voice of his wife say, Are you going to be home for dinner tonight, Joe? He clenched up inside. This was a familiar conversation. He turned around, looked at his wife, Laura, and said, uh, No, uh, I, uh, I have a business meeting. I, I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, I'll get something on my own. Don't worry about it. Laura looked with exasperation. Joe, this is the third time this week that you haven't been home for dinner. When's this going to stop? Oh, it'll be much better when I get this deal done. When this project is finished, you can count on me. It's going to change. I'm telling you, it's going to change. And Laura just looked at him with just exasperated eyes. Joe, you have been saying that for 10 years. I'm telling you, I do not know how much longer I can take it. A woman lighting up by her bedside as she got out of bed in the morning, her first cigarette of the day, broke into a hacking cough and momentarily flashed on a vision of the Surgeon General's warning. A young teenager driving through a rundown part of our city uh, was filled with thoughts of all the things that she didn't have that other kids had until she looked out the window and saw the figure of a little girl sitting on the stoop of a burned-out apartment building just cradling her face in her hands. And she thought to herself, maybe I shouldn't get so wrapped up in myself. A businessman having his second stiff drink with lunch momentarily thought, of his, the warning his friend had given him and the invitation that the man had extended to come with him to AA. And while reading the morning paper, a young professional whose life was going a million miles an hour suddenly was pulled up short by the article in his local rag describing a promising young executive who had suddenly died of a massive heart attack leaving a young family behind. 
all over our villages, across our city, across the expanse of our nation, the warning light, the warning call of God is being issued to people. It comes sometimes through the voice of the Scriptures. It comes sometimes through the message given by a loved one, a family member, or a friend. Other times the message is given through a sudden crisis, a catastrophe, or change. Or even your own body becomes the messenger of what God is trying to say. But in each and every one of these various circumstances, the message is there for those who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. It's flashing out its warning. Wake up. Watch out. Turn here. Repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Now that word repent... That word repent simply lacks the attractiveness to make many of us want to talk about it these days. It has largely gone out of use these days. It is one of those terms like sin that feels so repulsive, so Narrow, so constricting, so negative that nobody really wants to think about it anymore. You're probably not going to see repenting with the stars taking home the Emmy anytime soon. (laughs) In a society that prizes personal choice and independence so very highly, the word repents ranks just behind sin on the politically incorrect list. A lot of people are like the uh, character that's played by Billy Crystal in that marvelous movie, City Slickers, the one where he says, sure, we're lost. Sure, we're lost, but we're making good time. (laughs) Many of us have a sense that we are lost in one way or another. Uh, But the thought of really making radical changes to deal with that lostness is somewhat unappealing. Even those of us who are faith-oriented, frankly, find it obnoxious to be told we need to change. Uh, Some uh, sort of zealot comes our way calling us to repent of this behavior or of that attitude or of that spending pattern. And there's something in, in us that just rises up. I know it's in me that wants to just say, well, who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, honestly, who are you to make me feel guilty? You attend to your own life. I mean, who, who appointed you the moral cop of this world? And just as there are people on that side of the issue who, whose business it seems to be about condemning the behavior of other people, there are also those on the other side who influence us in another way, who suggest to us that that really we should avoid the issue of repentance, not so much because it's obnoxious, push at us, but because we don't really need to do anything that radically different. There's no problem we have that can't ultimately be repaired in a far simpler way. Some of you will remember, perhaps, that uh, famous commercial of years ago in which the, uh, the Pantene 
uh, hair product spokesmodel uh, is, is zoomed in on by the camera, and this beautiful woman looks at us, and she coos out so seductively, you don't need a new life. You just need a new shampoo. <laughs> so that's the problem. That's the answer. That explains why I'm such an irritable bore around the house sometimes. It's, it's my hair products are not addressing the need. It explains the crack babies and the, the deficit and all of the problems of our time. We just need some new product to address the need. Those of you who are students of the Bible are well aware that that God assesses the problem and the solution in somewhat different terms. God insists that the root of our problems is considerably deeper than our follicles. If you read the Bible, then you know that God looks at these things and says that we must learn to recognize our need and repent of our situation. In other words, we must learn to recognize how radical is our need for transformation, which is why he calls us to be born again, as we discussed last week. And then we must do more than simply recognize the problem. We must turn from it and move in a different direction, which is what the word repentance is all about. And the call to repentance is not just a marginal, occasional theme in the Bible, but is arguably one of the most preeminent themes in all of the biblical witness. It is the very center of the prophetic message of the Old Testament. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and Hosea and Elijah and go down the list of Old Testament prophets have as their central message the need for human beings to recognize the, the deep uh, spiritual and characterological need and turn, repent of that and move in the direction of God's intentions. The message of repentance is the primary message of John the Baptist, who is the bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Repent and be baptized was the sermon title of the very first Christian sermon. The sermon that St. Peter gave on the day of Pentecost was heralded with those words, repent and be baptized, turn and be washed and begin life anew. And it's therefore no accident that the very first words that escaped Jesus' lips when he returned from his temptations in the wilderness and began his public ministry were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. If we want an eternal relationship with God, if we want a life-transforming relationship with God and not just a religion, if we want a life that fulfills the abundant possibilities for which we were created, then we need to change more than our shampoo we may need to change our entire way of thinking about life. We may need to change our way of spending our time. 
We may need to change our way of handling our resources. We may need to alter our way of dealing with conflict and with our enemies. We may need to repent of so much more in our life than we have previously been willing to face. As we saw last week when we explored what it means to be born again, the Christian life is not about becoming a slightly nicer person. It is about becoming a radically new creation. And if there's any misunderstanding about that still left in the room, if we're still laboring under this idea that what he just wants to do is make a few tweaks, a few refinements in us to make us slightly nicer people than the ones we work alongside, let it go. Let it go. Take hold of a much more beautiful dream that God has for you. His desire is to make you an altogether new creation. And I think, as I've thought about this issue for my own life, that there is just no way to become that new creation short of, way, short of examining my old patterns, my familiar patterns, and being willing to let go of them in favor of the way of Jesus. And because I imagine that at least some of us, when we hear this kind of invitation, uh, have go through our minds all kinds of questions like, what do I really need to repent of? And why should I uh, repent of it? And for whom should I repent of these things? Let me just try to offer briefly three possible motivations for you and for me to begin making some of these changes, to cooperate with the movement of God, the call of God in our life. And these motivations, I think, spring out of the words Jesus gives us in that text from Matthew 4. First, repent because there is a king. There is a king. A group of children were once asked in their Sunday school to write letters to God. And one child's letter was very brief and to the point. And this is what she wrote. Dear God, my dad thinks he is you. Please straighten him out. I wonder how many of those letters my kids have written. Or others in our life have written to God, maybe in not just those words, but certainly with that sentiment about us. Because, friends, the reality is we get to thinking that we're the king, we're the queen, we're the one whose, whose life should be the center post around which the behaviors and the schedules and the patterns of everybody else in our house or our workplace ought to be adjusting. We're the one whose preferences count most. We're the ones whose will needs to be done. But the message of the Bible is, while we are infinitely precious people, none of us are the king. Uh, each of us is in desperate need of the king. We wear ourselves out trying to appear as if we were. Uh, we want to uh, appear to be the ones who know it all, who can do it all, who have it all figured out. We do that even in church. We try and appear like we're just so uh, regal in the way that we're put together. But deep down, we know it is not the truth. And one of the reasons I know for sure in my life that I'm not the king, 
that that is not the truth is because I have at least caught a glimpse, as maybe you have, of the true king himself and the way he lives. Although he was dressed in the rags of a pauper, he came as an ordinary working-class guy. There were those who recognized in Jesus a certain royalty about him. There was a straightness about the life of Jesus, what the Bible calls righteousness, that nobody else possessed in anything like the same way. As no ordinary person does, Jesus was able to resist the temptation to be ruled by those base appetites that command so many of us. He was able to resist the temptation to be ruled by that lust for power and for, uh, for control that drives so many of us. He was able to resist the temptation to, to be led by that need for popularity that trips up so many of us and certainly so many leaders in our time. Jesus was able to overcome temptation and not just actively resist evil, but to actively do good. And even to his enemies, he did good. He would speak the truth in love to them. He would stand up for who, whom the world beat down. And in every one of the circumstances and situations of life, he showed us what goodness looks like lived out in the flesh. And those, of course, who had the eyes to see recognized in him not simply a good moral teacher, not a simply better version of your average person, but a truly royal way of being, a higher standard of living that made at least the wise want to follow him in the hope that by being in the presence of the king, rubbing shoulders with the king, they too might take on some of his characteristics. Maybe Henry Ward Beecher puts it best when he said once that repentance is not, contrary to popular opinion, a dark, self-condemning thing at all. On the contrary, repentance is but another name for aspiration, for wanting to be like the king. Some of us keep working at repenting in our life. And let me just say this. Repentance isn't a one-time thing. You know, people sometimes talk uh, within the Christian world as if you repent and then you turn to God and then your life is good and you're pretty much done. Now it's an ongoing process of, of, of letting go of the old way and turning toward the new way and and stepping into that way more deeply as time goes by. Some of us keep working at doing that because there is a king. We know the king. We've caught enough of a glimpse of the king to see how much his life and his love inspires us to seek that way of living in our own lives. But but the reason that others of us are are willing to even attempt that kind of difficult change, and I, I don't know about for you, I will tell you, I find it difficult to let go of the world's way of gaining prestige and, 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 and uh, security and, and, and a sense of, of value. I, I find it difficult to let go of these things. And the reason that I, I for one, I, I feel that maybe I should keep trying to do that and, and, and feel that there's possibility that life can be different for me, even at my rambling old age, is because of the second principle Jesus gives us in these famous words. We repent, we work at repenting because there is a kingdom of heaven whose power is real. 
There is a kingdom of heaven whose power is real. This struck me very significantly when I was a a young skeptic, very uncertain and disbelieving about the way of Jesus. And, And I was pulled up short by some very articulate young Christians who called me to examine the life of the very earliest followers of Jesus and to see if I could explain it. How, for example, did a cowardly, blowhard like Peter, who lacked the guts in spite of all of his claims to faithfulness to Jesus, lacked the guts to stick with him in the end, and three different times denied that he even knew the guy he had pledged that he'd stay with forever. How did that guy become the man who just a short time later was willing to go and be crucified upside down rather than deny that Jesus was Lord instead of Caesar? How did that happen? Or what about John Mark, who was the young man in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of the arrest of Jesus, who, upon seeing the guards the coming guards, was so terrified for his own life, his own well-being, that he he turned, and when they grabbed his, his cloak, he ripped literally out of his clothes, and the Bible says ran naked from the garden to get away and save his own skin. How did that guy become the same one who just a few years later stayed in Rome in the very teeth of the Neronian persecution when Christians were literally being filleted and butchered by the hundreds, how did he become the guy that stays behind in order to write the gospel mark that bears his name? And what about Saul, that man who held so tightly to the Pharisaical way of life who, that he hated the Christian movement, that he resolved to destroy it, he persecuted and killed Christians, How did he become the man who became the ultimate champion of the Christian faith and the builder of churches who himself was also executed for the sake of the faith he once persecuted? How did the girl Lizzie in more contemporary times, a gal I knew in Belfast, Northern Ireland when I lived there, who was a a child of one of the, the terrorists in the town and who was in the junior version of the terrorist movement herself, how did she turn and suddenly become a leader of one of the Bible studies and one of the most hopeful, open hearted young women I've known? What do you do to explain all of those self-absorbed professionals or those hardened prostitutes or, or, or those cynics who suddenly have become so very different than they once were? How do you explain it? This is how the Bible explains it. Jesus Christ changes lives. The power of the kingdom of heaven for transformation is real for those who will open themselves up to its entry. As author Frederick Buechner puts it, repentance is not so much a matter of looking at the past and saying, oh, I'm sorry, as it is a matter of looking at the future and saying, wow, 
life can be different. It can really be different. Give yourself a break. Let go of whatever those patterns and those priorities and those entanglements have been in your past and turn towards a way of hope and aspiration and wow in your life. Turn towards the way of Jesus. Do it today. And mark my words that a year from now, you'll be paraphrasing the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who once proclaimed, I may not be the person I want to be. I may not be the person I ought to be. I may not be the person I could be. I may not be the person I will be. But praise God Almighty, I am not the person I once was. Raise your hand if you can say that because you've known the power in some way in your life. And don't stop yielding yourself to his commands. Repent because there is a king who calls you to nothing less than the royal standard of his way of being. Repent, secondly, because there is power in the kingdom of heaven to change you for the better the more you open yourself to him. And finally, repent because that kingdom is near. Howard Eddington, a Presbyterian pastor from Florida, once shared a piece of free verse poetry that makes this last point about as well as anything I've heard, and I'd like to share it with you in closing this morning. It was written by a 19-year-old girl for her boyfriend. I've shared it once before. It's entitled, The Things You Didn't Do. Remember when I borrowed your brand-new car? and I put a great big dent in it, I thought you would kill me. But you didn't. Remember when I dragged you to the beach and you said it would rain, and it did? I thought you'd say, I told you so. But you didn't. Remember when I flirted with the other guys to make you jealous, and you were? I thought you'd dump me for sure but you didn't. Remember when I forgot to tell you that the event was formal and you showed up in jeans? I thought you'd drop me forever, but you didn't. There are a lot of things that you didn't do, but you always put up with me, always loved me, protected me, hoped for me, endured me, believed in me, called to me anyway. And so there were a lot of things that I wanted to make up to you when you came back from Afghanistan, but you didn't. Do not wait to answer the call of God. 
Do not treat this life's journey as if it's a perpetually open opportunity. Value the time. Value the people. Value your God. Value your life. God is shining his light on you now. God is calling to you today. God is speaking to you, offering you his salvation or his way of life. And if you have been waiting for some day out there to get right with God, to, to, to ask the forgiveness of your sins and turn to him, if you've been waiting for some special sign to make some other important change in your life, if you've been thinking that there's going to be some day when you'll get the text message that tells you now's the time to give that message of love or that, that message of apology that you have been meaning to speak to somebody significant in your life, if there's some act of service that you've been thinking of performing but just haven't gotten around to, if there's some change that you know God is calling you to make in your priorities or your pattern of, of living, if there's some relationship that you need to repair, I urge you, do it now. Do it now. Live life as Christ is calling you now. Turn here. Turn now. For Christ commands you to repent. For there is a king. There is a king who offers you the power of heaven, nothing less than the power of heaven to make the changes that you need to make. And the end of this life and the final coming of that kingdom is near, nearer than some of us even know. Please pray with me. Our God and King, unwilling to ignore your call, we come before you in repentance today. We do believe that you command the very power of heaven unto salvation, that there is no vice or vanity of ours, that you cannot erase and replace with righteousness and health. And so in the privacy of our own hearts, each of us now makes the turn away from whatever failing or fearfulness or entangling sin has been in our past, and we turn all the way around toward whatever wholeness you have for our future. And as we turn our very heart, soul, mind, and strength in your direction, make us thine, we pray, in the name of the Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.